Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. Yeah, we're glad to have you here with us. How are you doing today? Ah, it's a pretty good day. It's uh, nice and sunny outside, just a nice, calm, peaceful day for us. Are you ready to disrupt this peaceful day with a horror movie? Well, I don't think this is going to be too rough of a horror movie. (laughs) We are watching The Monster from 1925. And we are back in the United States of America after five years abroad in (laughs) Europe with German and Swedish films. Uh, We haven't seen an American film since Jekyll and Hyde, mostly because the horror genre doesn't really exist in America. But yeah, in the 1920s, the like horror genre as we've been seeing it in Europe with Nosferatu and Phantom Carriage and these films didn't exist in the United States. They didn't have that genre. What they did have was this weird trend of haunted house comedies <laughs> where it was sort of just a bunch of like goofy comedians having to spend a night in like an old dark house to like solve a murder mystery or something. And that's sort of the genre that this movie fits into, although it does put a few more twists on it to push it further towards more horror, which is one of the reasons why we are watching this, but we haven't watched some of the earlier versions of this bizarre 1920s American (laughs) subgenre. But it's, it's based on a play. This genre as a weird artifact of American post-war culture does kind of, I think, come mostly out of stage traditions. Okay, that's interesting because in the research I did for the play, it's not a comedy. Okay. Yeah. So the play that this movie is based on, you mean? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the play's from 1922. I have a lot to say about the play, but before I do, I thought it would be interesting to briefly go over the overall history of spooky stories set in haunted mansions. So the gothic horror genre, basically. Yes. That was like a focus when you did your English undergrad, right? You were really into the gothic horror subgenre? You did a class on it or something? Yeah, what's funny is the whole class was just the 18th century in general. Oh. And gothic horror was just one part of it but I hated everything else except for it. So all of my assignments, I focused just on this one part of it. Okay, so you just really connected with that genre. Yes, because it's good, but also because Tristram Shandy is the worst. (laughs) Oh, no! Oh, oh, but... (laughs) Little did I know that my second year in my undergrad for English would come in so handy (laughs) so many years later. (laughs) The gothic horror genre in literature, there's there's quite a bit of it. It's all in the mid-1700s, but the typical piece of literature that people always point to is The Castle of Otranto from 1764, written by Horatio Walpole, 4th Earl of Oxford, but his friends called him Horace Walpole. Oh, What's funny is I I think I know the name Horace Walpole as an author, but I didn't know the fourth Earl of Oxford part. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. It feels like there was a period in British nobility where, like, all they did was sat around and told ghost stories to each other. I don't know. (laughs) 
what's kind of funny, the term gothic with gothic horror mm-hmm. came from Castello Otranto because its subtitle called it a gothic story, but gothic was only included to date it as if it was a found story from the Middle Ages. Oh, okay. See, like, the history of the term gothic is so weird because it's tied up with, like, architecture. Yeah. And it, like, I always thought that gothic horrors were called that because the, like, crumbling castles that they were set in were, like, supposed to be, like, gothic architecture style or whatever. I think, like, the modern-day goth term is because of gothic horror, and then that's because of all this other weird stuff. Yeah. So the Castle of Otranto, it's that... A castle is haunted and it comes to life and it keeps haunting until whatever villain or evil that's in the castle is defeated. I remember having to read part of it. I don't think I read all of it for the class, but it's quite spooky. It it holds up. Okay. With the gothic genre, it can probably be best and broadly defined by having some sort of supernatural element, either real or implied, taking place in old buildings... <laughs> to spook readers. Gotcha. Some people who fit into this genre are people like Poe, Mary Shelley with mm-hmm. Frankenstein, and even Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre would yeah. kind of fit into there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Just think spooky, old building, you, you fit in. Gotcha. Like even Dracula. Yeah, for in. sure. Yeah. What's interesting is gothic horror shifted into parody quite quickly because of these stereotypical... Uh, characters, uh, cliches, and tropes, um, it's really easy to take something like that and turn it into something comedic and make fun of it. Sure. Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey from 1818 is kind of the key example of this gothic genre turning into parody. Mm. There's other examples, but notably all, all of them are really derisive to female readers. Oh. Women are silly for believing in gothic horror so much they start to just see it in everyday life is oh. kind of the way I would describe it. Weird. Okay, so it's the whole, like, women like this genre, therefore this genre is stupid kind of thing? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, okay. Because nobody does that criticism anymore. No kidding, hey? <sighs> Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey is 1818. That's about uh, 50 years after Castle of Otranto, mm-hmm. so speaking... <laughs> Over the course of literature, 50 years seems pretty quick for me for it to turn into parody sure. of itself. So now to jump back to the monster. Okay. The play is 1922. It ran for three months on Broadway, uh, so fairly successful. I'm not really sure how to judge play success rates by how many performances that you've had, but everything I read said that it was pretty popular and it did have a revival later on. So I think that shows that it was pretty popular. But yeah, it's not comedy. Uh, It's described as a drama. Huh, weird. And I'll explain why that's a little significant in a bit. The monster, the play, the plot is that there are these car accidents happening on a bridge... A reporter goes to investigate it, leads into a nearby mansion owned by scientist Dr. Ziska, and then horror elements happen from there. It was written by Crane Wilbur. Uh, It was actually only his second play for him to write. He later became a screenwriter for, uh, like, quite a lot of things, but one thing that stood out was House of Wax in 1953. Okay, cool. Um, And he also wrote and directed the 1959 film adaptation of the play The Bat. Ah. He's actually a cousin of Tyrone Power. Oh, neat. Which was, like, weird, weird thing that came up. 
but yeah, so the reason that it's, I think it's significant that it's described as a drama, other than this genre tag, I couldn't find anything saying whether it was a comedy or not, definitively. Mm-hmm. So the other plays that were happening around this time that were considered a horror comedy was... The Bat uh, from 1920, where there's a wealthy spinster who has guests uh, over at her summer home and they're hunted or chased by a costumed criminal. Yes. The Bat is incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. Very explicitly had a comic relief character. Mm-hmm. And its genre is melodrama. Okay. In 1922, we had the play The Cat and the Canary. The plot is that very kind of tropey now. Um, 20 years after this rich guy's death, the relatives come to his old mansion to read the will, um, and they have to stay overnight in this haunted castle to get the will. Okay. You know, I'm so used to that just being like a bad, like, (laughs) Saturday morning cartoon or sitcom plot that I guess I never really thought of it as, like, coming from a place specifically. (laughs) I just thought of it as, like, a stock plot, right? Yeah, yeah. So, Cat and the Canary, uh, also pretty popular both in play and in film, because it was adapted several times, but it's also described as a melodrama. Okay. So, in my understanding, the melodrama would be more, I'll say, ridiculous, both in the sense of, like, fantastical things happening on screen and ridiculous reactions to people, right? Yeah, it's over the top. Exactly. Whereas a drama, like how the monster is described, is a bit more, I'll say, believable. More realistic, Subdued. Subdued. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. So that's, that's why I think the monster, the play is not considered a comedy. Mm -hmm. But then that got me kind of wondering with what you mentioned before about, like, why aren't there the type of horror movies we've seen in in Europe in the U.S.? Like, why do we keep having this comedy horror in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. Um, And I couldn't find anything in particular. I did find some articles both on, like, blog sites and academic articles talking about how old spooky house films of uh, this kind of time period parodied melodramas happening on the stage. Okay. Um, so that would make sense for why the monster on stage might have been a drama, but then the monster film would be the comedy Okay. of that. But I was also thinking about like the development of the, the gothic horror literature genre mm-hmm. and how it doesn't take long for something that's melodramatic to evolve into that parody of itself. Yeah. And I'm sure you have a lot more to say about this stuff with film, but there was The Ghost Breaker in 1914, which is the first haunted house film by Cecil B. DeMille, which was just not a comedy. Um, but then that was remade in 1922 as a comedy, directed by Fred Green. Then in 1922 as well, we had One Exciting Night by D.W. Griffith. 1927 was The Cat and the Canary film adaptation, which was definitely a comedy. Mm-hmm. To me, these are all signs that, at least in the U.S., that turn from melodrama to parody is happening. Yeah, I think what's interesting to think about is, you know, we're very specifically narrowed in on the genre of horror film, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing that's... So it's weird when you go to America and you start to see, like in movies like this, you know, these parodies of these spooky old house stories... When you're going, well, but nobody's ever done a spooky old house story. Like, you know, we haven't seen any straight American ghost story horror movies 
but we're getting the parodies already, and it's, it's and it feels weird. Mm-hmm. But I think that's sort of because we're so focused in on film that we forget about kind of the larger conversation happening cross media, where gothic horror literature has been around since the 1700s, and spooky haunted house plays have been on the stage in melodramas for years and years. And so I think you've hit the nail on the head that these films are parodying genre conventions, you know, that the audience would have seen in other media, mm-hmm. even though we haven't really gotten straight versions of these stories on film. Definitely. Yeah, the film, uh, as you said, based on the Crane-Wilbur play, was like, you know, as you were saying, part of this trend of horror-thriller comedies in Hollywood. All of my information says that they basically exploded because The Bat was so successful on Broadway in 1920. As you mentioned, probably the earliest known example of the like haunted house comedy genre of film is 1914's The Ghostbreakers by Cecil B. DeMille. Mm-hmm. But the reason we didn't watch that movie is because it's lost. There's no remaining prints of it. Um, Which is too bad. It would have been really interesting to see. It probably would have been our only Cecil B. DeMille film on this list, too. Oh, really? Like, he's a big deal director, but I cannot think of any horror films on his resume. Uh, He was mostly big, giant, biblical epics. Yeah. Uh, So like you mentioned, that film was remade as a comedy in 1922. The remake is also lost. Oh. Uh, So we didn't watch that either. Uh, Although it's more comedic than the original. And then there's a third version from 1940 that's even more comedic of the Ghostbreakers. And then that 1940 version was the inspiration for Dan Aykroyd to create the Ghostbusters <laughs> uh, in the 80s. Cool. Another film that you mentioned was One Exciting Night, mm-hmm. which that came out in 1922 and was the result of D.W. Griffith kind of on the low end of his career, past his prime, past Birth of a Nation and Intolerance, and he was just really in need of a hit. Uh, he'd had a string of expensive failures. Uh, So he put his own spin on this mystery thriller comedy genre with One Exciting Night, and that's about the murder of a bootlegger, because uh, we're in the Prohibition era in Mm. the States right now, Mm -hmm. and it's the the cast has to try and unmask who the real killer is while spending a night in this house. Uh, So very typical stock kind of plots again, right? Sounds a lot like Clue. Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) Uh, Clue definitely fits into this genre, that's for sure. One exciting night, though, we didn't watch. uh, Like, it exists still. But we didn't watch it because it's, it's really much more of like a thriller. It doesn't really have any horror elements at all. And it ends with a climactic hurricane. Because, you know, it's D.W. Griffith. you got to deliver that spectacle. Yeah. The things that I came across that kept mentioning One Exciting Night would say things like, while it did include blackface, it ended with a hurricane. And it's like, that doesn't counteract the no, blackface. No, those aren't, those aren't related <laughs> things at all. I did also, uh, yeah, it's unsurprisingly for a D.W. Griffith film, it's pretty racist. You know, they're hunting for the true killer, and I won't go into too much detail about who they initially think the killer is. Well, One Exciting Night was a flop with audiences and critics. It did not do well. What sort of made the monster different and unique and why we're watching it is that it used techniques from horror cinema. Um, So it's doing this kind of genre that we've been talking about of these spooky old house movies, but it was bringing... This film brought in 
you know, the filmmaking techniques of horror, which mm. as a genre really only existed in Europe at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so the kind of dark, shadowy, cinematic style of those European films. And the, the main reason why the film has those elements is because of its director. Uh, the monster is directed by this fellow named Roland West. Okay. And he developed quite a positive reputation throughout the 1920s for these kind of stylistic, dark, spooky comedies. He would end up doing the film adaptation of The Bat after the success of this film. Oh, cool. um, so he had this very good reputation for these sorts of things. Um, unfortunately, he had an affair with actress uh, Thelma Todd in the early 30s. And then she died of carbon monoxide poisoning under suspicious circumstances in 1935. And both the affair and then her death kind of put enough clouds over his reputation that he wasn't able to find work anymore, and he withdrew into seclusion following that. Uh, and he eventually died in 1952 following a stroke, and on his deathbed confessed to the murder of Thelma Todd. Oy. Yeah. So he's he's someone whose career is is now kind of overshadowed by this really bizarre series of events. The film was released on March 16th, 1925 by Metro Goldwyn Pictures. Um, <laughs> this is the predecessor of what we now know as MGM. Metro so, Golden Mayer. Yes. This studio came into existence because theater chain owner Marcus Lowe bought Metro Pictures in 1919 to ensure a steady stream of content for his theater chain. Uh, Metro Pictures had existed, I think, since around 1916 or whatever when he bought it. Then he later bought Goldwyn Pictures, uh, which had, was another production company formed by Samuel Goldwyn in 1924 because he wanted to increase the quality of the films that uh, his theaters were showing. In 1924, those two companies then were now Metro-Goldwyn Pictures, and that's who released this film. Uh, later on in 1925, he would buy out uh, Mayer Pictures so that he would have the proper management in Hollywood to run this whole thing because he was based in New York. And so with those three companies then, now it was MGM. Okay. So this is, this is really just before it becomes MGM. It's just MG at this point, Metro-Goldwyn. <laughs> Cool. The other big reason why we're watching this movie is because it stars Lon Chaney. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So Lon Chaney's sort of nowadays, I think, remembered as this legendary horror star. But it's kind of worth remembering that he's not actually in a lot of horror movies. He's in a ton of movies. He's in 157 films. Wow. A uh, hundred of which are lost. Oh. Um. But, you know, who he really was was he was a character actor and a makeup artist. Born in 1883, both of Cheney's parents were deaf. They had met at the Colorado School for the Blind and Deaf, which Cheney's grandfather had founded. Oh, cool. So because both of his parents were deaf, Cheney became very skilled at pantomime, mm -hmm. and that led to him pursuing a theater career in 1902. He married singer Cleva Creighton in 1905. That's um, funny that she's a singer, but his parents were deaf. Sure. They had a son, uh, Creighton Cheney, born in 1906. Hmm. In 1913, Cleva attempted suicide and afterwards divorced Lon Chaney, who ended up joining the film industry to get away from the theater and stage scene that now 
like after the divorce, like that whole scene kind of became poisoned for him because him as an actor and his wife as a, a singer, they had had like a, a couple act going on. So mm. now there was just, it was just too hard for him to work in that industry anymore. So between 1912 and 1917, Cheney acted in a whole ton of films, mostly in like small bit roles or character roles for Universal Studios. What helped him was he was so skilled with makeup that it gave him a real kind of competitive edge because casting directors knew that they could use him for just about any role hmm. um, because he could just be, he could just become anything. In 1916, Cheney remarried, and with his new wife, Hazel Hastings, they regained custody of his son. From 1917 to 1919, Cheney starred in 14 films with Dorothy Phillips and William Stowell, with the two men alternating between being romantic lead or villain, <laughs> with uh, Dorothy Phillips always the female romantic lead. His big breakthrough role, though, was in 1919 as a character called The Frog in a movie called The Miracle Man, uh, where his performance and his command of makeup uh, established him as basically America's greatest character actor. <laughs> Cheney's subsequent films varied greatly in genre. You know, mm. he wasn't a horror actor. He was a genre character actor. But they always afforded him the chance to create a new appearance. Um, you know, he is a legless gangster in 1920's The Penalty, and then he's Fagin in 1922's Oliver Twist. In 1923, Universal lavished Cheney with his biggest role yet, which was Quasimodo, mm. uh, in their immensely large-budgeted production of Hunchback of Notre Dame. And that was sort of the movie where Cheney went from being a respected character actor to just straight up one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. Nice. Um, one of his methods for becoming so well-known was ironically shunning publicity. Um, so he created a mystique for himself where, you know, most members of the public didn't know what he really looked like. You know, his face was always so drastically different in every single movie because he had all these homegrown makeup techniques that he was so skilled at that people didn't know who Lon Chaney was. And he got this nickname, um, the Man of a Thousand Faces. Chaney then moved over to Metro-Goldwyn, for his next film, uh, which was 1924's He Who Gets Slapped, where Cheney plays the title character, a circus clown, He Who Gets Slapped, who was once a promising scientist who went into the circus after suffering disgrace and humiliation. A lot of Cheney's films are about, like, weird, disgraced people, often who are like, circus performers and stuff, and he really focused on wanting to play, like, people who were kind of outwardly ugly, but inwardly had some humanity that you sympathized with. The Monster uh, was his very next film after He Who Gets Slapped, and his role in The Monster, he plays Dr. Ziska, was sort of already playing on his status as a star character actor. You know, it's, it's sort of like when you watch a modern movie and, like, a, a famous actor shows up in, like, a, a weird role under, like, a bunch of makeup, and you're like, oh, wow, it's that guy. That's really cool. I'm sure we'll probably go into more detail about him uh, when we get to Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, we're going to have more of Lon Chaney Sr. Uh, in other <laughs> episodes, and certainly there's a lot to him and his career, so there'll be other opportunities to go into uh, more depth. Cool. How are we watching The Monster? I know you've been tracking it down, and it's been... Quite the search. Yeah, this is the first movie we probably won't be able to put up on the YouTube Scream Scene playlist. 
I couldn't find it on YouTube anywhere. We're into 1925, so a lot of films we are watching are still going to be kind of public domain, but we can't rely on them being public domain anymore. You can safely assume anything before 1923 is public domain. After that, it depends on how old is it, did someone bother to renew the copyright, so on and so forth. The Monster has been released by Warner Archive on DVD. Uh, they put it out on DVD in 2011. Uh, Warner Archive's kind of a really interesting program. Instead of doing mass print runs of movies, you order it online from them through Amazon or TCM.com or wherever, and they just print the disc for you and send mm. it to you. And th so this is how they can, you know, have home video releases for movies that aren't, like, going to have a wide, successful audience. Yeah. As such, like, it has been shown on TCM. The version that's on DVD and has been shown on TCM is, like, a restored, nice version if you're in the U.S., you can stream the monster on Amazon Video for like a $5 rental, but you can't in Canada. Oh. So we're watching kind of an inferior copy of this film, uh, an old VHS release of the monster. Oh boy. And I think it'll probably really prove my point about, you know, how much you can enjoy silent films really is tied to how much care has been put into the release of the version that you're watching. I'm excited to see what this version will look like and sound like. <laughs> so folks, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back after watching The Monster from 1925. See you on the other side. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Monster from 1925, starring Johnny Arthur and Lon Chaney. Okay, so full disclosure that the version we had decided to add its own soundtrack and sound effects, regardless of what was happening on screen. It felt like, you know, someone picked four or five kind of royalty-free, spooky music tracks threw those in there, and then vaguely kind of threw some sound effects in without really listening to them, just by going maybe from their description, and threw them in there. There were times where we hear horses. And there was never horses. There was no it horses. Was, I couldn't explain to you what, yeah. There was someone gargling during the party scene. Yeah, just, if you can see, like, the restored version of the monster, the one that, like, shows on TCM and that, like, is available from Warner Archive, like, see that one. Just, just see that one. Let's do a plot summary. It's probably going to be pretty fast because, like, most of this movie's running time is really just taken up with, like, gags. Yeah. As opposed to any kind of, like... Story. Right. So we're in this small little town, and a farmer's gone missing. And we see a little bit of how he goes missing. He's driving at night, and we see this weird dude in a tree lowering a mirror. To avoid crashing into what he thinks is another car, the farmer swerves, crashes, and then he is taken by this mysterious figure. So in the town, they don't know what's happened to the farmer. The insurance company has sent an investigator to kind of see what's going up, but... He's not actually our protagonist. Our no. protagonist is the shop boy 
who just got his diploma by correspondence to be a detective. Uh, and when you graduate with this diploma, you get a little sheriff badge and a gun and some handcuffs. Yeah. This is Johnny Goodlittle is the character's name. And he's played by comedian Johnny Arthur. And he's our main comic protagonist. And the whole shtick with him is just that, like... He's like a Charlie Chaplin knockoff. He, yeah, he's got, he's got a bit of, I think, a lot of the various silent comedians in him. But he's, he's childish, and he doesn't have a firm grasp on, like, reality. And he's just a little, you know, he's just a bumbler. He's just a, he's a comedian. Yeah. He's a romantic rival with his boss at the general store, Amos Rugg, who's like this dandy. And they are romantic rivals for the hand of Betty Watson, who's the daughter of the guy who owns the general store. Mm -hmm. So everyone goes out to a party at Betty's place where there's a keg of cider, which like <laughs> the movie makes Ooh. a deal about because it's prohibition times. Johnny's trying to get in with Betty, but Amos cuts in, and so Johnny, like, leaves the party in a huff. Now, Johnny, at the scene of where they found this missing farmer's smashed-up car, he found a note from the Edwards Sanitarium mm -hmm. that said, Help, written on it backwards, so you needed a mirror to discern the clue, and so he thinks something's going on at the Edwards Sanitarium, even though everyone else is like, Ah, oh, that place has been closed for two months, so it can't possibly have anything to do with that. Yeah. So Johnny makes his way over to the sanitarium. <laughs> Meanwhile, Amos is offering Betty a ride home, yeah. but it's her house. Offering her a ride. Okay. The title card was too dark for us to see what was the offer. Yeah, there was the version we were seeing. Some of the title cards were very hard to read. Yeah. So Amos is driving along, Betty in tow, and the mysterious figure lowers the mirror, and so they crash. But they survive, and they aren't hurt uh, enough to be knocked out or anything. And it's raining by this point. Yes. Uh, the beginning of <laughs> practically a typhoon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they, they get out of the car, and they see some lights on at the sanitarium. At which the old sanitarium! <laughs> which implies that it's down the road. So I don't know why people weren't investigating it in the first place. Yeah. But anyways... They go down and, um... They need to see if they can use the phone. Yes, which is just the beginning of the Rocky Horror Picture Show... Connections. Connections. I, I didn't want to say references, because it would be the reverse. Yeah, sure, sure, yeah. Um, I mean, like, I feel like we could probably sum this movie up by calling it the Rocky Horror Monster Show. Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, it's very true. <laughs> very true. It's Rocky Horror without the songs and... I was about to say without the jokes, but I guess this is still a comedy, so replace, like, 70s sex humor with 1920s slapstick. Yeah. So they they meet up with Johnny, who's also In at the, the sanitarium. sanitarium. A bunch of, you know, goofs and gags happen that are, you know, your standard spooky house things of, like, Johnny sees something spooky, but by the time he gets everybody to look at it, it's gone away kind of stuff. Uh, and they, they basically just get spooked out by a bunch of stuff in the lobby for a while until Dr. Ziska shows up. And it's Lon Chaney to the rescue for making me interested in this movie. No kidding. He's he's pretty much the saving grace, huh? Yeah. I mean, like, there's some, some gags that, like, still hold up, which, I mean, it's slapstick, so it makes sense. But Lon Chaney is just... Is the phrase eating the scenery apt Chewing here? the scenery, yeah. 
You know, um, when you see those movies where a big name star shows up unexpectedly <laughs> and is clearly just doing it for shits and giggles, like that's what's going on here. Yeah. Chaney's in some pretty restrained makeup for Chaney. It's basically just old age makeup to kind of age him up by about 20 years. Uh, he's got big bushy eyebrows and wrinkles and silver hair. He wears like a smoking jacket through the movie and has like a, a cigarette and a big long holder and is just camping it up. Yeah, it's really his expressions and acting mm -hmm. uh, as a whole that helps me get through this movie. Yeah, so he tells them that he doesn't have a phone, but they're welcome to stay the night. Gets the Gives them a room. More sort of haunted house shenanigans occur with like spooky things happening and, and trap doors and hidden passages and eventually Betty ends up getting captured. At the sanitarium, Ziska has three patients minions. Yeah, so these three minions are actually all patients. Spoiler alert, Dr. <laughs> Ziska is also a patient, but we'll get into that later. But yeah, so the three minions are Dan, who just pretends he's lighting a cigarette all the time. But doesn't have a, anything, yeah. He's just a harmless kook, basically. Yeah, like a mime. Rigo? Yeah, Rigo, who's like the creepy dude who's been doing the mirror act on the streets. Who's like a cross between Igor and Riffraff. Yes. He likes to go out and he does bad things. That's yes. his description in the title. Right, sure. And then there's Caliban, who's basically a like seven foot tall, muscled up strong man, painted up brown so he'll look like he's from like India or something. Yeah. And then and oiled he, up. And he's mute. And he's mute. Yeah, I I couldn't quite figure out if he's supposed to be in brown face or in black face. I mean the character is supposed to actually be from whatever exotic place they're saying, but the actor's clearly a white dude, right? Yeah. The way that the lights shine off him, it either he was very warm or they did oil him up. Yeah. And he's just there to be the kind of generic, like, big, heavy brute who can, like, you know... Strong arm. Yeah. Caliban, destroy, kind of thing. Exactly. Um, so Betty gets captured, and Johnny ends up in a fight outside in this torrential <laughs> typhoon with Rico that at one point becomes like a balancing act on some telegraph wires. And like, we're watching the movie and we're like, wow, they really did copy One Exciting Night. Yeah, all I know about One Exciting Night is that there's a guy in blackface and that there's a hurricane. And this movie has a guy in brownface and a typhoon. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Johnny defeats Rico, but meanwhile, Amos has been like tied up into the basement and Dr. Ziska like wheels out Betty, who's on like a Frankenstein surgery table. And that's when he reveals his master plan, which is he's going to transfer, exchange Amos and Betty's souls. Because only from a woman can he learn the origins of life or something? None of that makes any sense to me. One thing we did just skip. Throughout the oh. haunted house, Johnny goes exploring and he finds trapped into the basement the actual scientist who runs the sanitarium, the missing farmer, and then another 
guy who's presumably just like a staff, staff member. Yeah, it's yeah. I will say I really liked that sequence because like those dudes look so harried, like they've got <laughs> beards and like shaggy clothes and like they're just in like like blackness in the basement and then like a light comes on and they're suddenly there. Like yeah. that part was cool. Yeah, so that's when we learned that Dr. Ziska is actually a patient who's just taken over. That's also when we learned that, like, I guess they've been trying to capture people for him to experiment on, but he specifically needed a woman. Even though his experiment is just to, like, swap people's souls. It it doesn't matter. The movie doesn't care. Yeah. Fast forward back to where we were before. So... Ziska has Amos strapped to this chair and is delivering his monologue of, like, this was my master plan. And then we see a hooded, cloaked figure come in, and we we assume it's Rigo, but it's actually Johnny in disguise because he just defeated Rigo. Oh, and Dan, the invisible cigarette smoker, uh, he's trapped on the roof. Uh, We skipped that part. That's because it didn't matter. (laughs) Yeah, it's happenstance. And Caliban is... In his bedroom, just like, like sharpening reading. a knife or something. Like, I don't know. Johnny lets Amos free. They jump the doctor, strap him to the chair, and before they can do anything, he starts yelling for Caliban. Uh, Caliban, the chair, kill him! And then they strap him, strap his mouth down, turn off the lights, and Caliban comes down and he's like, "Oh, there's someone in the chair. It's dark. I can't see." But he said to kill him, so I'm gonna electrify yeah. the chair, and yeah. that's uh, that. That's the end of. The doctor. And then um, Caliban gets got by basically getting like hung up in some machinery, and then the cops all arrive just in time and like save the necessary people needed saving and arrest the people who need arresting, and everything turns out fine. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a weird brief epilogue of like a sunny day in June <laughs> where it's just like to show us that Johnny and Betty uh, get together at the end. Yeah, Johnny's driving his own car, so presumably he's no longer shop boy. Mm-hmm. The insu- oh, that's what happens, yeah, because the insurance company detective offers him a job. Yeah. Because of his good work in Ingenuity. Foiling. Oh, I never want to hear that word again. Ingenuity? Oh, stop it. Okay, nope. okay. <laughs> Did we like anything about this? Uh, I liked Lon Chaney. He's clearly having a good time. Yes. Full disclosure, I did not like Johnny Arthur. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Charlie Chaplin. Oh. Because my boy is Buster Keaton. Sure. I didn't really see a lot of Chaplin in him other than, like, the pencil mustache, but... Well, I just figured, like, between the pencil mustache and the slapstick... All those guys did slapstick, though. Yeah, but have to have a distinct look. Sure. Chaplin had the mustache, Buster had the stone face, and Harold... Yeah, Harold Lloyd had the glasses. Yeah. There you go. Those are the only three people you need. So what I did like is you could kind of see the aesthetic roots to future films. So yes. we had like Colin Clive's Frankenstein uh-huh. is like the most obvious one. Um, but just the idea of like the mad scientist uh-huh. and the minions who do bidding. We haven't really seen that before. That's very true. Yeah, there's a lot of tropes in this movie that, you know, it's funny to think about the fact that these are all tropes. that This movie's kind of introducing into film that haven't been around anymore, but they're already parodies in this film. Yeah. I liked, you know, like you were saying, some of the slapstick comedies effective. Uh, most of the jokes I liked were sort of of the, the audience can see something that the characters can't. Variety, usually <laughs> a character will be, say, facing the camera and talking or something, and something's creeping up behind them that they don't notice. Uh, I liked Lon Chaney. 
I thought that like some of the dark spooky lighting and the effects worked well to establish the atmosphere. Yeah, I like the hands coming out. Yeah, for sure. I Like I said, I thought the scenes of the men in the basement, Rigo's this guy, I liked the kind of creepy stuff that's in this movie, uh, what little of it there is. Yeah, I liked the mood building. Which we had said in the beginning that it was the mood setting that made this movie different from things like One Exciting Night. Yeah, it's the fact that this movie's got like that kind of dark, spooky atmosphere and sort of, you know, shoots the scenes like they were a horror movie, but Mm -hmm. still has all that slapstick happening in and around it. That's that's about it for what I like, for sure. I don't know if I dislike Johnny Arthur. I'm just not sure how funny he is. I, I kept wondering if I would, if it was the jokes that weren't funny, or if I would find his character funnier if one of the big silent comedians was doing that role. Like, if that was Chaplin. You know, if instead of spending the money on Lon Chaney to be the mad scientist, when, like, the mad scientist character really doesn't get any screen time or anything really to do, like, Chaney's great, but it, let's say they spent the money instead on a bigger name comedian for that main role, would I have found his shtick funnier? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did find out that it's Johnny Arthur's fourth film. In a universe that, as we've described it, where people are doing, like, you know, 14 films in a four-year period like Cheney did, only your fourth film is still pretty darn early in your career then. Yeah, I didn't look to see what he had been doing on the stage or anything like that, mm-hmm. but uh, still seems pretty early in his career. Mm-hmm. So slapstick can work for me until it reaches a point where it doesn't. Yeah, a little of it goes a long way, that's for sure. Yeah, and so there were points where I was like, yeah, I I get it, he's drinking wine out of this fucking water jug. Mm-hmm. There's certainly a lot of, like, running around and chasing people up and down stairs in this movie. Like you said, a little bit goes a long way, but having variety yeah. with what that slapstick was. Like, I remember kind of, like, my eyes glazing over until Johnny crashes through the window after being on the telephone pole and, like, slides down, like... The banister, yeah. <laughs> several banisters, yes. just, like, repeatedly. That was a clever, fun bit, and it had... It had what a lot of this movie's missing, which is, like, energy. Yeah. You need some energy to make slapstick work. I thought, personally for me, that, like, pacing was a huge problem in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just not enough content here to be a feature film. Like, this is a skit, right? And you can tell it's a play. When they first get to the sanitarium, we get a bunch of stuff for a long time where we're just in that lobby. Yeah. For a while, while a few different things scare us. And then we move to the bedroom that they're given, and we're there for, like, a long time while a bunch of random stuff scares us. And then at the end of the movie, we're in the basement for a long time. So you, it really betrays its kind of theatrical roots because you're going, oh, yeah, because they're, you know, they're going to change the set every intermission or whatever, right? Yeah. And so it means, like, you, you end up feeling like nothing's happening in this movie for a long time. You you just kind of get to a place, and then you got to wait for them to go through every gag that's set up in that room before we can go and do something else. Because the thing about comedy is keeping you on your toes, right? And it's about expectation versus reveal. And yeah. this just got tired and repetitive at a certain point. I guess to go back to that banister scene where like he's sliding down, it was funny because that banister just seemed to just keep going. Yeah. And then we finally get to like the establishing shot of where he'd slide off at the end of the banister and he doesn't actually get there. He falls off yes. partway through that. Yeah. And so that part, I think that's why it stands out in my mind too, because it had that energy, like you said, but it had several expectations being subverted. 
It was weird to me in this film how, you know, there were some times where they used the visuals really well. It was weird to me in this film how, like, they tried for, like, dialogue humor at times, and it's a silent. Like, one of the things this movie does is is kind of write out phonetically the way people say things so that you know that they're, you know, a country hick or a bumpkin or, or a stammerer or something. And I guess that's supposed to be funny. It was also weird because, like, the whole movie's set at night with this thunderstorm, and the movie does the, like, cutaway to flashes of lightning thing that is such a classic, spooky horror movie trope. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's a silent movie, so you're not going to get, like, watching this movie, the, like, big crash of thunder that's going to make you jump in your seat. So it was just... Yeah, the part that's actually scary about a thunderstorm. Right. It was weird. So I had some questions watching this movie. Okay. Why is it called The Monster? I think it's supposed to be, when it first opens, you think the monster is Rigo up in the tree. Mm. When we first get to the sanitarium, Johnny gets there first, and he gets freaked out because we see from like this underground elevator from the floor, we see Caliban come up. Mm-hmm. And so then it's like, oh, is that the monster? And then the the entrance of Lon Chaney is very, like, very slow and like deliberate in mm-hmm. like how he's performing. I think ultimately the movie is trying to say that Lon Chaney's the monster. I mean, sure. But I also wonder if there was supposed to be some sort of Frankenstein-type creature. Yeah, because, like, what's his experiment? Like, the, the, the movie doesn't quite get there in so many ways. Because, yeah. like, why isn't this movie just called The Mad Scientist, you know, or something? Well, I'd be giving away that the scientist we meet is mad. I suppose. And he doesn't like it when you call him mad. No, he does not. <laughs> What? Like, I don't even get, like, I get that it's a comedy, so no one cares, but it seriously is bugging me, like, what was Ziska trying to accomplish with his soul switch experiment? Like, um, maybe he felt he could not ask a woman about the secret of life, needs to trade souls so that way Amos in Betty's body would then be able to be like, oh yes, the anti-life equation is this. Or or he could ask Betty in Amos's body, because he just, he gets so stammery talking to women, right? Yeah. I don't know. It's, that's not, this is, we're just making this up, folks. Let's be clear. (laughs) I don't think it matters, but it it bugs me because the movie structures itself as a mystery, right? Why are these people going missing and stuff? And it doesn't really care what the answer to that mystery is because it's just going to have some, some slapsticky fun, right? Here's something interesting. Okay. The New York Times review for this film (laughs) complained that the movie didn't know what it wanted to be. The New York Times basically complained about this movie mixing horror and comedy. And in fact suggested that the movie, like, could have been better if it tried to play the theme more straight. Which is just sort of so interesting to me because there were no American horror movies at this time. Mm-hmm. There was only these kind of weird movies. And when I say there was only these kinds of weird movies, I mean this is the second of this kind of movie to ever be made. Yeah. So it was interesting that, like, the, you know, the Times critic is going like, man, it would have been cool to just see a horror movie. Do you sort of agree with that? I agree. I wonder, again, thinking to what we talked about in the beginning, I wonder how much context we're missing based on what plays were happening right then and there, Mm -hmm. what films have been lost Mm -hmm. that we don't even know about. Mm -hmm. Because I think it would be natural to see something on the stage and being a film critic, be like, yeah, I'm cool to see this on film. Sure. It's starting out in this 
we'll say new-ish subgenre mm-hmm. of horror comedy, and it's trying to do the balance between scary and slapstick, and my problem with it is it leans too hard into the slapstick. It sounds like that's this reviewer's problem as well, but I think there are ways to do slapstick comedy in a horror movie genre. And maybe just because this is the first time that it's doing this with the horror tropes and aesthetics, mm-hmm. it's stumbling. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I can't really fault it for that. So you would say that with this film's horror-comedy balance, you would have preferred more horror, less comedy? Um, more horror, better comedy. Sure, sure, <laughs> fair enough. Okay. Yeah, I think I think I'd probably agree with that, too. I'm not sure, you know, I don't think this movie needed to be funnier in terms of more gags. I think it needed to be funnier in terms of better gags. I think I would agree with that. So do we want to rank the monster? Yeah, I think, I mean, we can have a discussion about whether and how it fits into the horror movie genre. I think it does. Yeah, I think that, you know, we talked about this with some of the entries on the list, like the Golem and the early shorts that we did, that you can't so much hold it against a film for not falling into a certain genre if the conventions of that genre don't really exist yet. Yeah. I think the conventions of the horror genre do exist in certain contexts by 1925. Germany knows what a horror film is. Sweden knows what a horror film is. But, like, America doesn't. Yeah. And they're just kind of figuring it out, and this is as close as they're (laughs) sort of able to get right now. And I think also thinking about, like, the intent Okay. Because there are parts where, like, yeah, obviously the intent is to make us laugh. There are definitely parts in this film that are meant to horrify us rather than just terrify us. Sure. I mean, I would argue that from a modern perspective, this is primarily a comedy. Mm -hmm. In the same way that, like, Ghostbusters is primarily a comedy. Yeah. You know, and there's bits in Ghostbusters that'll make you kind of jump in your seat. But primarily it's a comedy. And I would say this is primarily a comedy. But in the context of 1925, this is what a horror movie looks like in America because Americans aren't ready for full-on horror movies yet. Uh, Something that just came into my mind. What do we think about this movie in comparison to the horror we saw in John Barrymore's Jekyll and Hyde? Oh, that's a good point because that's the last American movie we saw. Yeah. Uh, that was in this genre. That yeah. movie was scary at times. Yeah, this that movie had, you know, Barrymore turning into Hyde and then coming right at you and stuff. And I think there's a moment that's kind of like that in this movie with Chaney. John Barrymore's Jekyll and Hyde is a scarier movie. It's more of a horror movie than this. You know, it's played straight. This movie's trying to make you laugh. But what it's got that's so interesting that we keep pointing out is it's got all these cliches and tropes that are going to be integrated into legitimate serious horror movies later, where people are going to take stuff from this movie and say, oh, but what if I play that straight? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's so funny to know that, like, Crane Wilbur goes on to, like, write House of Wax, you know, and do these other kind of movies that are more straight horror movies. And doing both writing and directing mm-hmm. of movies like that. It's we'll have really to, interesting. We'll have to keep an eye out for his name as we go forward. Definitely. Okay, so looking at the list, Sarah, I think that where I'm looking is definitely like the lower half. I think that, you know, our discussion about whether this film's a horror movie or not and sort of deciding, well, you know, it's really a comedy but it still belongs on the list reminds me of our discussion about the golem and how the golem's not a horror movie it's really a monster movie but we decided it belonged on the list 
Now, the golem's sitting at number 12. I was looking in that area as well. I was thinking that the highest I would put it is in and around Avenging Conscience. Mm -hmm. The lowest I would probably put it is probably above the 1913 Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, you're probably right. Like, I I think I would... Ultimately, Lon Chaney is better than King Baggett. Yeah. You know, and then it's obviously not better than Avenging Conscience because Avenging Conscience was at least trying to be a little bit spooky, scary, creepy mm-hmm. in a more sincere way than this film. Yeah. So we're kind of just left with this movie versus The Golem. And I mean, obviously, they're very different to compare. Neither one is really a horror film. You know, one's a monster movie, one's a comedy. One's a period film, one's very contemporary to the 20s. I don't even think you could compare them on the basis of monster movies. Because, like, despite its name, the... There's no monster in the monster. Yeah. Ultimately, because we can't really versus them on the basis of being horror films, because they're not. And we can't versus them on the basis of their other genres because they're not from the same alternate genre. Mm -hmm. But we can, I think, just straight versus them on which is the better film. The Golem's pretty much got to win that, right? Yeah. Like, special effects alone. Yes. Um, But also just, just like... Production value. Production value. uh, Pacing. Yeah, pacing. The Golem's better pace. The Golem has more of a... Like, to be honest... The monster is sort of one of the first films we've watched where I would look at it and go, someone just made this to make money. (laughs) Right? Like, this is a commercial film. Like, I think you could look at a lot of the films on our list so far. Phantom Carriage, Cabin of Dr. Caligari, Nosferatu. You know, and look at these and see movies that are intended to entertain, but also intended to have some artistic value. And that the person making them, you know, had something artistically valuable to do and say with them and the golem has that too you know Wigner's trying to make a personal artistic statement with that film I don't think anyone gave a shit about that with this movie I think I feel like Lon Chaney just when you have someone who's that talented and that Mm -hmm. professional Mm -hmm. um like you can see him putting a ton of effort into what he's doing Mm -hmm. and I mean like you can probably argue that Johnny Arthur is doing that as well but besides those two it's difficult to argue that people are in this movie for something other than making money. So you're totally right. Yeah, and, like, Roland West as a director is certainly doing... Like, people are doing a good job, but, like, the thing is, is, you know, it's worth saying, and I think you hit the nail on the head with the word professional, that, like, there's no connection between doing a good job and having, like, artistic passion for the project. Mm. You can do a good job and not give a shit. Yeah. It's possible, as long as you're professional about your work and take pride just in the idea of a job well done, which a lot of people do. But you can't really look at this movie and say, like, ah, oh, what was Roland West trying to say about, like, the nature of American society or something? <laughs> like, it's, it's not there. This yeah. is just designed to sell some theater tickets. So I think it, it loses against the Golem, but because it's got Lon Chaney, it's better than King Baggett's Jekyll and Hyde. So for me, that puts it on the list at number 13. Cool. Unlucky number 13. <laughs> I will say, oh, and it's episode 13. Is it? Yeah. Okay, so The Monster from 1925, directed by Roland West, enters the list at number 13. Above 1913, Jekyll and Hyde, and below The Golem, 1920. Mm-hmm. So if you would like to see this list that we've been talking about, you can find it on our website, 
screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. That's also where you can submit an appeal or a suggestion in our Ask Box. Uh, find links to SoundCloud to listen to the show, as well as find the Scream Scene YouTube playlist that includes most of the movies we've watched <laughs> for this list, not including this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, at underscore Scream Scene. Uh, give us a follow. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Um, you can also subscribe to us through either SoundCloud or iTunes. Please leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, again, love to hear what you think. In addition to our Tumblr, if you'd like to email us to submit an appeal or suggest something or just shoot the shit, you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, so for episode 14, what are we watching, Ben? Oh, I'm so excited, Sarah. Oh my god, your eyes. We're watching The Phantom of the Opera, starring Lon Chaney, from 1925, mostly. Mostly? It's a, it's a long story. I'll explain it in the episode. But I love this movie. We'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.